hey, there's a show you might want to know about. Now in its tenth season, Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a podcast about tragedy, triumph, unequal justice, and actual innocence. Based on the files of the lawyers who represent them, together with other criminal justice activists and experts, Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom features interviews with men and women who have spent years in prison for crimes they did not commit, some of them having even been sentenced to death. These are their stories. Look for Wrongful Conviction wherever you listen to podcasts. So this is it. I feel like people are going to say, is that all? I know. We know, right? We, we we could just change the name of the podcast to Men <laughs> That's right. and go right on doing hundreds of episodes on sexism, patriarchy, the damage done by bad masculinity. And I suspect that some listeners might enjoy that. Uh, we've gotten a lot of positive comments from you and, and some, of course, challenging us to do things or say things differently. Yeah, including the gentleman on Facebook who basically called me a sissy, undermining... <laughs> masculine men. But yeah, we've loved hearing from you all um, through reviews, emails, social media. Many of you have kept the conversation going on Twitter. After the episode about the scientific battle over gender, Shanna tweeted, episode three is so infuriating that I needed to take a break to get through it, but I couldn't be happier that they dove into this topic. So glad this show exists. After part four, our feminism in black and white episode, Ursula tweeted, None of us have any excuse, if we ever did, for continuing to misuse the term intersectionality. We've heard from women's studies professors telling us they're using men episodes in their classes. And Wesley, a university career counselor, tweeted, quote, I'm weaving these discussions and points into my counseling sessions with young men. It has really planted a few seeds. Yeah. Other folks have chided us, mostly gently, for things that we haven't covered or covered enough. It took us till late in the series to give more than a nod to gender non-binary folks. Guilty, but we always knew we were going there. A listener wrote suggesting we do an episode on the indigenous perspective on gender, which we just mentioned a time or two but didn't delve into. Another man suggested we talk about penis size as a revealing point of sensitivity for men. I might have been absent for that episode (laughs) by choice. Um, And though we talked about homophobia, we did not directly hear from gay men about their relationship to masculinity, except from a trans gay man, Melvin, in part nine. Yeah, we also chose to focus mostly on Western and ultimately American culture. We were clear about that. There's a whole world out there of stories about patriarchy and the damage it does across the globe. All of these suggestions are worthy, and anyone else doing a 12-part series on a topic as massive as patriarchy would have made other choices about what to do with those dozen episodes. But John, we called the series Men, and the focus we kept coming back to was patriarchy as constructed by people who look like you, cisgender, heterosexual men, and in our Western culture, white men. That's right. Much like our previous series, Seeing White, in which we turned the lens on white people and whiteness. So much reporting and writing about gender issues in our society looks at the experience of women and LGBTQ people and how people in those marginalized groups are faring in the face of sexism and the other isms that come with patriarchy. And there's nothing wrong with any of that reporting, but there is plenty of it. 
So for this, it was important to put the camera in selfie mode and take a good hard look at men's role in misogyny. Because we're the source of it. We are the problem. The primary problem. Because another thing that we've come back to again and again is that patriarchy is systemic. It's the water we all swim in, the water we learned to swim in. So we're all trained to perpetuate it, and a lot of us do so in various ways, whatever our gender. With that, welcome to the finale of Seen on Radio, Season 3, Part 12 of our series, Men. I'm John Bewin. I'm Celeste Headley. If you're just finding us, please go back and listen starting at Part 1. All of this season, we've taken, I think, an illuminating, troubling, and often gripping journey into male dominance, how we got it, and how it works. In this episode, we're going to step back and try to look at where we are as a society in the long struggle for gender equality and how we can push ahead. Before we get to that, though, let's take a couple minutes to review. Celeste, do you have a favorite takeaway, something you find yourself telling friends when you talk about this project? Yeah, it's definitely the wasted time and energy and money and ideas. I mean, the massive, unnecessary waste. Century after century of women being kept in a box by sexism, not allowed to develop their talents or live out their dreams, not allowed to contribute... What ideas have we never heard? What innovations were never made? I mean, it's infuriating to me. How about you? What stands out? (laughs) (laughs) Let's not delve deeper into my infuriated state of mind. After our Seeing White series in the previous season, I found myself using the word clarifying a lot Mm. to describe what the project had meant for me personally. And that's the best word I've got for this journey, too. There's a way in which you think you know things having been exposed to social critiques and some history and feminist thinking. But by asking these kind of more precise questions, as as we've done together, questions like, how did this whole thing actually go down, right? When when, when did patriarchy start and, and how and why? Oh, so the caveman having bigger muscles than the cave woman is not the answer to that question. Right, because she had pretty darn big muscles. <laughs> there's also the nature-nurture question that we dealt with, right? We found there's no simple answer to that. But it was clarifying to hear the arguments and then to realize that actually the subtleties of any innate biologically-based differences between male and female humans, on average, statistically just don't matter that much, not compared with the overwhelming conditioning we get from a sexist culture. We're social creatures built by culture as well as our genes and hormones. We direct our own evolution. Let's remind folks of some of the other highlights of the series, previously on men. How do women still go out with guys when you consider the fact that there is no greater threat to women than men? We're the number one threat to women. Globally and historically, we're the... In the ancient world, there was the theory of humors, which explained where men and women fit in cosmology. Women were cold and wet, men were hot and dry, and of course, the valued quality was heat. The woman's entire education should be planned in relation to men. To please men, 
to be useful to them. So that there's this bright line between the independent head of household and his dependents. And those dependents are everyone from his wife and children to his free white servants and his enslaved uh, servants, both men and women. Margaret and Mead came up with this concept of womb envy as an answer to Freud's concept of penis envy. Penis envy seems kind of ridiculous to me. Me too. <laughs> and when I cried out with my mother's grief, none but Jesus heard me. And ain't I a woman? And so they literally bailed on African-American suffrage. Most of the white women suffragists did. And I thought, well, yes, I can give him a ride. It's like, it's not like the groping that was so terrible. It was the years and years and years of like very insidious undermining and It's this unspoken, unconscious knowledge that I think we all have as women about how the rules work. <laughs> there are no repercussions. <laughs> had a three-star general come in and speak to the class about his principles of leadership. Number one, be a man. The kind of emotional makeup that's needed for war is not something you can just turn on or off like a light switch. What's happening, hot stuff? This is how an, a stereotypical Asian male character is portrayed. In many ways, black men are the canary in the coal mine for the crisis of, of American masculinity. Um, and, and I'd like to think You'd hoped that I would have been a daughter. Why did I have to go over to this other thing that was more like my dad and my brothers? And I now know that you don't, you're not trying to be like your dad or your brothers. You're trying to be like you. You, you definitely have to get pissed off at someone when they call you gay. Not pissed because they're... Not pissed because they're being homophobic, no. Maybe you are pissed because they're being homophobic, but you have to act like it's an insult at least. You have to have a kill or be killed mentality, and I haven't seen that from him either. If the guy wanted to be the guy, we'd know it. The lie of patriarchy is dominion. The delusion of dominance over the feminine, including Mother Nature, will kill us. So as we record this, the 2018 midterm elections are behind us, the Kavanaugh-Blasey Ford hearings, and the confirmation of Justice Kavanaugh are among other recent events. There is a lot going on in the gender wars right now, notably the Trump presidency itself. Yeah, so where are we going from here as a culture? We could go on for hours with that conversation, right? But let's kick off that conversation with, uh, I guess, what I would call an optimistic view from one of the scholars we interviewed early on. We said way back in part two that we would come back to Mel Connor. He teaches anthropology and behavioral biology at Emory University, and he wrote the book Women After All, Sex, Evolution, and the End of Male Supremacy. Remember, he's the guy who said women are superior to men as a group. Oh, I remember that. <laughs> Mainly because of the two very damaging traits that men are far more likely to display than women, namely physical violence 
and exploitive sexuality, as he calls it, the tendency toward sexual assault and harassment and so on. But we promised we'd come back to that last part of Mel Connor's subtitle, The End of Male Supremacy, because he thinks we're well on our way to that goal. He does, and he spends a good bit of his book making that case. Now, before women start throwing things at their radios, <laughs> well, before you throw your podcast listening device at the ground, <laughs> don't throw your he- phone. Hearing us talk about the end of male supremacy being close at hand, we know, and Mel Connor knows, that there's a lot of work to do before achieving that. But here's Mel. No, anthropologists take the long view, and I, I know that women are impatient to get this equality thing moving faster at every level of society and every walk of life. And I'm, I'm totally with them on that. And it's their impatience that, that explains progress in the past. And fortunately, uh, they've been joined by some men who are also impatient about, about this. Not all that many men, let's be honest. But Mel's point is that in historical terms, change has happened pretty quickly. After many, many centuries and millennia of literal patriarchy, men dominating and essentially owning women, he says, look at the last couple hundred years. Yeah, he starts his book in 1869 with feminist Elizabeth Cady Stanton giving a speech at the National Women's Suffrage Convention held that year. She was arguing, of course, for women's right to vote, which may have seemed like a distant dream at that point. Half a century after that, women women get the vote. And then half a century after that, you have second-wave feminism, which is was a movement responsible for, for a lot of uh, important steps forward in women's education, women's influence. Education is a pretty dramatic example that Mel Connor likes to talk about. Mel is 72 years old. When he was born... Women were a small fraction of college students, and many elite universities had quotas. For example, Stanford would admit only one woman for every three male students until the late 1960s. New laws around that time made those quotas illegal. So Mel describes a graph that he likes to show his students with two lines on it, showing men and women as a percentage of all college graduates in the country. It starts in 1967, when one-third of those graduates were women. And today, two-thirds of college graduates are women. When you look at these two curves, and they, they cross each other at around 1981 or, or 82. And, and I like that. I put my finger on the slide on, the, uh, on that point, and I say, okay, here we are at 50-50. Uh, that's what we were aiming for, right? But, we should have stopped at 50-50. Obviously, I hope being ironic here, the women, the young women, didn't get the mammal. They just blew right through 50-50. Connor sees no reason to doubt that this will happen in other areas, including politics. If you look at the graph showing the number of women in the United States Congress through our history, it's flat, 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 and then it heads upward at a rather steep incline. Well, yes and no. (laughs) I mean, if your graph shows the whole 240-some years of our country, sure, that upward climb of the last few decades looks really impressive. But I gotta say, the progress does not feel all that steep to me. I hear you, 
uh, it's a matter of perspective. And I suppose it's fitting that Mel Connor, a male scholar, is highlighting what he considers rapid advancements for women. Right. Well, as a woman, I've reached 48 and it hasn't felt very rapid to me, right? Um, we have a record number of women in Congress right now. That's true. But they still only make up 25% of the House. We would need 100% more women in order to make it equal. But I get his point, too. You know, the other difference is that I'm a journalist. And that's, so I'm looking at things year by year. And he's an anthropologist. And he's looking at cultural change over eons. Right. Centuries and millennia. So by that standard, this is downright sudden. The first woman was elected to the U.S. House in 1916, Jeanette Rankin. Half a century after that, in the late 1960s, women are still less than 5% of the House and the Senate. In 1985, still just five women in the Senate, out of 100, of course. And yeah, the line on the graph goes up from there. 1992 was called the Year of the Woman because four, four (laughs) new female members were elected to the Senate. Woo! The Year of the Woman. (laughs) After that, there was steady growth. And 2018 was another real step forward. In the House, the number of women jumped from 84 to more than 100 in just one election. And that group features historic numbers of women of color, including the first black female member from Massachusetts, the first two Native American women, and the first two Muslim women ever to serve in Congress. So in the House and the Senate, after 2018, almost one-fourth of the members are women. I mean, come on. I'm sorry, but it is, it's pretty sad that I'm supposed to be excited about that. <laughs> <laughs> but Mel Connor's point is that if that line keeps trending upward the way it is or speeds up, women will have half the seats in our national legislature pretty soon. Or more than half. Yes. We are 51% of the population. Because as Mel says, there's no real reason to think the trend will stop at 50-50. He thinks women have advantages in the world we live in now that make it almost inevitable that women will continue to gain power and influence and end male supremacy. So why does he think that? First of all, he says, some of the structural forces in society that held women back for so long have pretty much been cleared away. For most people and most jobs, it's no longer an advantage to be bigger and stronger, which men are on average, right? Most people are not farmers or ditch diggers or longshoremen anymore. He also says, despite how it seems if you read the newspaper every day, warfare is in a steady worldwide decline. Wars between nations and the numbers of deaths from war have declined a lot since World War II. There is debate about whether that's a lasting trend or a temporary anomaly. But because the military is traditionally a male bastion, if war is central to the lives of nations, that means more power for men. But it seems that at least for now, most nations are turning to war as a solution to conflicts less often than in the past. And that's good for women. And then there's this, reproductive freedom. The ability to separate sex from reproduction is possibly the the single most momentous change in modern times. It removes uh, one of the greatest disadvantages that women have, have faced throughout history and across the world. The ability to decide when to have children or whether to have children at all is something we take for granted in modern rich societies. But it's really new in historical terms and tremendously liberating to women. Now we just need to protect that right from the people who'd like to 
chip away at it. Yeah, so, so those are some of the changes that have created more of a level playing field for women. But going a step further, Mel Connor argues that we increasingly live in a world in which traditionally feminine qualities are valued and constitute advantages for people who have those qualities. <laughs> really? That's what I think. <laughs> and now, obviously, we're not all the way there yeah, yet, I'd right? Yeah, I'd say. <laughs> We've spent a lot of this series talking about how society teaches men to be competitive and domineering and too often re- rewards that behavior. And again, look who we elected president last time. Terry Reel, the psychologist we heard from in the last couple of episodes, describes American masculinity as being at war with itself, a war between two visions of manhood, the old patriarchal version, as represented by bullies like Donald Trump, and a newer, more progressive kind of manhood. So the optimistic take is that Trump's election was the dying gasp of toxic masculinity, one last big backlash in the face of the longer-term trend toward a kinder and more relational kind of American man. Yeah, we can hope. Yeah. But of course, it's not about hoping. Yeah. The forces of old-school patriarchy will keep fighting, and they have to be overwhelmed. There are some hopeful signs, though. Even while Donald Trump sits in the White House, it is true that organizations of all kinds, even corporations, are increasingly looking for people and leaders who can collaborate and cooperate. Just the other week, a column in the Wall Street Journal said, employers, more and more, are looking for leaders who display, of all things, humility. That sounds like good news for a lot of women. And humble men, right? And the New York Times recently made the point that until not so long ago, corporations thought it was risky to put a woman in charge because, heaven forbid, she might have her period. And then what would that mean? Blood everywhere. (laughs) But now in this Me Too moment, hiring a woman as your CEO could look less risky than hiring that hard-charging dude who might have a history of sexual harassment and not be able to keep his hands off of people. And might not be able to keep his job. Let's face it, the struggle continues, and it will for some time. Our listeners can guess as well as we can how long it'll really take to dismantle male dominance. How optimistic are you, though, Celeste, at this moment? And maybe maybe one way of asking that is, um, is Me Too, a, I don't know, a, a momentary blip or the beginning of a real, real turning point in our culture? I'm of two minds on this, because um, the the practical side of me knows that we have had these moments before. There have been times when women have risen up in anger and said, that's that's enough. Time's up, to use another hashtag. After Anita Hill, for instance. Absolutely. And, yeah. and even, you know, there have been other little milestones. Um, and each time we've made incremental progress. But here we, I still make less than my male colleagues, right? I mean, we're still here. Um, that's one side. The other side is that I notice a change in the way women are complaining. Because Mm. previous generations put most of their energy into convincing men. Mm. That was the the point of the movement, right? Convincing men that we're as good as you are, that it's in your best interests to stop stepping on our heads. Um, And I think women are just too mad to do that anymore. Mm. I think we're at the point where we're like, look, screw trying to convince you. Either get with the program or get out of the way. 
Yeah, I sense that too, and I and I think uh, and I don't. I'm certainly not going to disagree with it as as a kind of impulse and as a strategy, and it seems very powerful to me. At the same time, I do think that men are hearing the message. I, I didn't even want to say getting the message because that sounds like like a grasping. I think it's being heard, and it's really unclear. I mean, I think men are all over the place, right? There's a whole spectrum of how men are responding to hearing that message that basically we've had enough from women. And I think one thing that makes me a little bit hopeful is the sense that um, even the way that the, a word like mansplaining has become very familiar in the culture just in the last, what, five, ten years? That ends up being, I think, a, a kind of an influential thing like, oh, it's actually not cool to be that guy. And I feel like that, you know, that kind of ripple will spread along with these other things about like, duh, don't sexually assault or sexually harass the woman you work with, right? And I think the the, the empowering part is that women have stopped caring. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Except for the men who are close to you in your life, who about you really care if they're on board, right, or not. Right. But everybody else, I mean, I'm one of those pissed off feminists. I've had enough. Yeah. You know, I am tired of being logical about it. I'm tired of making the case and presenting the graphs and charts. That's that time was is over and it, it's that's enough i'm ready to move on here's another thing to to think about celeste if we have a world in which let's say 50 percent of members of congress are women 50 percent of corporate executives are women maybe more right yeah 51 percent is my goal john how does that change the world or does it well I mean, I would like to think that it makes the world uh, slightly less competitive. I mean, we do have evidence from company from countries in which they have mandated that there's an equal number of board members, for example, corporate board members between men and women. And we found that the women are less likely to take dangerous risks, for example, right? They tend to be safer. You wouldn't have had the bank failure, but if more women had been in charge is what many experts say. Um, but here's the other thing is that it literally does mean some men are going to lose out. I mean, right now, when the vast majority of positions of power are held by men, if this isn't going to be entirely kumbaya, I mean, it, it does mean men have to give up some stuff. Uh, I also think, though, that there's a sense, and I think there's a parallel, too, with racism, that people who look like me get threatened because of a kind of assumption that if white supremacy ends, if patriarchy ends, that, that'll just be a flipping of the hierarchy and we'll be treated the way that we treated you all for the last hundreds of years. Well, you know, you'd ex- be in trouble, wouldn't you? Right? And there, I'm sure there are quite a few women who would smile at that image, right? <laughs> yeah, putting you, putting you guys in corsets and making you scrub the... <laughs> but I also think that I think that's not the world that most feminists are talking about creating, right? No, and we have so far to go, 
right? Like all feminists are talking about is equality. That's literally what feminism is, um, is, is equal treatment for both genders. We're so far from that. I mean, we automatically get paid less. Uh, we automatically get fewer opportunities to be promoted. We get fewer considerations to become executives. Like, let's not worry about tipping it to the other side until we actually reach balance, Yeah, but I'm also talking about something even deeper, which is maybe we create a world in which we're not so stratified. We don't have such an intense, you know, this kind of winner-take-all society that some people talk about in terms of the economic system even, right? That maybe we create a world that, that, that where the world is actually a little bit more nurturing and we kind of take care of each other a little better. Well, if research gives us any clue with more women in power, that world you're talking about is more likely achievable. Uh, Women are more likely to bring us the kind of meritocracy many people are deluded into thinking we already have. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right? So, I mean, yes, I think that men lose something in this equation because you've had extra for so much. And you're going to lose that extra that you've had, hopefully. But you gain something. I mean, this is something we've talked about all season long, is that toxic masculinity and patriarchy hurts men as well. And there's there's a gain. And hopefully that what you gain by dumping this toxicity is going to outweigh the extra bonus that you guys have enjoyed. So, John, the full-time production staff of Scene on Radio consists of you, right? (laughs) It does, uh, with wonderful institutional support from CDS and from our friends at PRX, our distribution partner, and the huge contributions from collaborators like you and the indie producers we worked with this season. But I expect you'll want to take a breath and then turn to your next series. Have you thought about what it might be? I have ideas, haven't decided for sure just yet. Uh, Folks should feel free to let us know what they'd like us to take on next. Put a comment on the show's Facebook page or tweet me, at Scene on Radio. S-C-E-N-E. Thank you. Celeste, what a joy and an honor to work with you on this season. You brought such wicked intelligence and uh, heart and good humor to this and so I just I'm really grateful thank you so much thank you it's really been a pleasure and I also feel like I should probably put wicked intelligence on my business card now absolutely that's awesome it really has been a great collaboration and yeah. shows how the two genders can work together <laughs> right. productively and even talk to each other yeah that's right watch on our website for uh, org for a bibliography that will go with this series if you'd like to keep learning stuff uh, and soon I hope Uh, a study guide for teachers or folks who'd like to just lead a discussion group on these ideas. Yeah, after you get over the cold that you have. Exactly. John Barth was our editor this season. His sharp eye and ears helped make these episodes better. Thanks to everybody at PRX who brought the show to your headphones and helped get the word out. The music all season long by Alex Weston and by Evgeny and Sasha Galperine. Huge thanks to the composers and to Joe Augustine of Narrative Music, who provided music production help and and made this great scoring possible. 
The CDS communications team is led by Liz Phillips. Whitney Baker created the show's website, seenonradio.org. Mara Guevara created the episode art. Harper Bewin designed the men logo. My bosses are Lynn McKnight, associate director at CDS, and director Wesley Hogan. Scene on Radio comes to you from the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University and PRX, 